Book of Colossians, if you would, please. If we had, uh, if we had handouts, uh, sermon outlines, it, the title would be, What a Difference the Gospel Makes. Colossians chapter 1. We, we live in a, a, uh, a culture of, of self-transformation. You know, it seems like all the time I, I see on the news uh, Botox and plastic surgery, all kinds of self-help teaching in books. And I don't know, is Anthony, is Anthony Robbins still around? I haven't heard of him lately. Heard from him lately? I, you know, those kind of. We're, 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 it seems as though we're constantly trying to transform ourselves into something that we we think we need to be, or we would like to be. Um, and and any any kind of man-made or, or man-initiated self-transformation is is temporary. It's 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 fake. It's shallow, um, and certainly doesn't last. Well, as we look at our text today, we're going to see quite the opposite um, from a culture of of self-transformation uh, to a world of of transformation that only God can do. Uh, so, uh, Colossians chapter 1, let's read verses 1 through 8 together, and then we'll, uh, we'll unzip the suitcase, we'll unpack it a little bit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Timothy our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Um, Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, you've already heard about this hope in the message of the truth, the gospel, that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and recognized God's grace in the truth. You learned this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. What a difference the gospel makes. Uh, I want you to notice, first of all, a thankful apostle. And in verses uh, 1 through 3, and it's interesting how, uh, you know, if you look at commentaries, man, they, they, they rip this thing apart, you know, and, and, and they draw inferences and, and lessons from this thing. And I suppose they're there. You know, for instance, they say he was an apostle. He was trying to establish his authority. And, um, and he was sent by Christ Jesus, again, in his authority, by God's will. And they, and they tear all this apart. And, you know, Timothy, our brother. And, and really, verses 1 through 3 are, are just essentially a greeting. <laughs> That's all it was. And, and I suppose, it, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there's all these meanings behind it, for sure. I'm not quite so certain, though, that when Paul wrote this letter, he had all these deep theological uh, intentions behind his greetings. Uh, he just simply says, this is Paul. I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and Timothy, our brother. So, again, as, you, as we talked about last week, this letter was sent by both of them. Uh, Timothy probably was the one who actually penned it, who actually wrote it. I, I would have loved to have seen that manuscript. I, I, I mean, I'm glad we don't have the originals. Can you imagine what kind of icons they would be? We'd be worshiping those manuscripts. But I, sometimes I would, as Timothy wrote this down, I would have loved to have seen how Timothy wrote. 
And he says, though, as common in that day, they would identify uh, who wrote, who was writing the letter. Contrary to how we don't write letters like anymore, because email, we, are, we, we see their name on the heading. But we used to put our, you know, our names at the end of our letters. If you're under 30, you probably don't remember ever sending the actual. And do you ever remember going to the mail? Going to the. Do you? Do you really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Her grandparents don't have emails. Okay. <laughs> Good point. Okay. Well, that's it. That's it. Yeah. This is this is this is, this was very uh, conventional and very normal. He just simply says, "This I, listen. This is Paul and our Timothy brother, and, and we're going to find out later that Paul had never been to Colossae, or he didn't certainly didn't found this church. It was probably Epaphras who founded this church. So he's writing to people who'd never met him." Uh, he'd, he'd, they'd never seen him face to face. And he's just simply introducing himself. He's inter- introducing Timothy and the standard greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And this is the, this is the way Christians would greet each other. Um, it, it's like uh, we have different ways of greeting each other. Kelly's is, how are you? That's her. That's Kelly's greeting. That's her unique greeting. Others is, uh, what are some of our other greetings? How are you? How are you? Hey there. Yeah, hey there. So that's, this was conventional. I'm not quite sure that there's a whole lot of uh, deep theological insight there. He's just identifying, hey, this is Paul, this is Timothy. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. But now, in verse 3, he introduces really something that I think that is significant. And he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. What an encouragement this would have been for them. They'd never met the Apostle Paul. Certainly they knew of him. Um, and he says, we always thank God. This is an acknowledgement. This is, this, is, this is something that is significant. And we've talked about this before, but every time we read it, I'm going to remind you guys of this. He never thanks them for anything related to their spiritual development. He always thanks God. This is an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. Who is ultimately gets the credit for anything that happens in our life? It's, it's, it's God the Father. It's really not us. Now, we have, a, we have a role to play in our sanctification. We understand that. But he says, I thank God. He doesn't say, I thank you when I pray for you. I thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This was a public act of praise. And, and our act of praises are usually very private and very personal, but historically in the church, acts of praise were very public. And, 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 and so Paul begins this letter very upbeat. He says, I always thank God. Every time we pray and every time we think of you, we always thank God for you. So we, we, he starts off very thankful for them. Now he's going to tell them why he's thankful for them. Which is, the, is really, he starts with the results and then ends up with the reasons. So in verses 4 through 6, he talks about a powerful gospel. But instead of going right to the gospel, he starts with the results of the gospel and then works his way down to the source. So he starts with the results and then works his way down to the source. Now, verse 6 is the fulcrum of this passage, and, and there would be a very complicated reason for that. In, in, in um, 
particularly in Hebrew literature, there is a, there's a literary device called chiasm. And this was a way, this was a, a, a kind of uh, writing that they would use to emphasize a main point. And what they would do is they would start with an argument and, and they would move towards a conclusion and then they'd start with that conclusion and then go back out mirroring the, the events of the persons that they had going into it. So, verse 6, if you look at verse 6, it is, the, it is the fulcrum, it is the point of this chiasm, which is, in fact, he says, the word of truth, the gospel. That's the focus. That is the main idea in this whole text. In verses 1 through 8, it's not thanksgiving, it's not their faith, it's not their love. It's all, it's, it, Paul wanted them, the main idea... The main emphasis was on this gospel, a powerful gospel as we see. But what he does is he starts with the results of that gospel and then moves toward what ultimately explains the transformation in their life. Well, look with me first at the results. He says, we, we always thank God for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, what could this be? Is this their initial faith? Is this their when they first believed? Or is he talking about their ongoing faith in Christ Jesus? Um, probably both. But I think the emphasis is, is, is more than likely on their current, their current walk of faith in Christ. And this will come clearer as we go through the text. He says, every time I think about you... I am mindful of your faith in Christ. Um, when, we, when we talk about well, testimonies uh, of how people came to know Christ, I grew up in a tradition that, that emphasized when it happened. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so ours was, when was it that you received Christ? And the emphasis in the Bible really is not when. But the emphasis in the Bible is, have you? Are you right now in a state of faith, in a state of belief? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking that question. It's, it's interesting to know how various ways and times that people came to know Christ. Um, my wife, for example, she can't tell you a specific point in time. There was one. You're, you're not born a Christian there was a point in time in which she crossed over from death to life. She can't really tell you when that exactly was. So she's not saved? Because she can't remember a point in time? No, because she has faith now. She, is, she has faith in Christ right now. And so I think that's what his emphasis is. I, I thank you that you, your, your lives exhibit a, a real, ongoing relationship with Christ. Which leads me to believe that there was something he could see. That, that, that faith is something you can see. It's not just private. It's not just personal. But there's something about faith in Christ that people should be able to see in our lives. Paul said, I thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus. Both initial faith and ongoing faith. Now, we think usually oftentimes that faith is required to get into the heaven but then after that, I'm kind of on my own. Turn to, uh, keep your marker here and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Turn back two books. Galatians chapter 3. This is something that the, the, the churches in the region of Galatia were struggling with. 
Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he said, You foolish Galatians! And I, and I like, I, I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible today. I like how, he, how they phrase this. Who has hypnotized you? Who has bewitched you? Who has cast a spell over you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Did you suffer so much for nothing if, in fact, it was for nothing? He's saying, listen, you got into this by faith and faith alone. And guess what? It's continually by faith and by faith alone. And so Paul says to them, I I am thankful to God for your ongoing, persevering faith in Christ Jesus. The second result. Again, these are just results. He starts with the results and he's going to the source. The second result, as he says, is what? I thank God for your faith in Christ Jesus, verse 4, and of the love you have for all the saints. Now, these saints are not like Roman Catholic saints. These are, this is hagios. These are holy ones. These are God's people, fellow believers. Uh, your love for God's people. And this is interesting to me. He, indirectly, God expects us not just to attend church. That's not His plan. That's not what it means to, to, to be part of God's family. Let me, let me, let me ask you, let me give you this analogy. What if you had children and all they ever did was show up for mealtime? Now, some of us might go, man, that would be great. That actually is looking pretty good. Um, and then they left. They just came for meals and then they left. Uh, how, would, how, would we, how would we think about that family? Would we say they were a close, loving family? No. And, and oftentimes, pe- people think of church that way. It's like they just come for meals and, go, and they leave. Now, I know that this is a very complex, difficult thing to, to, to assimilate into churches. And, and for those who are experiencing true love and concern for one another, to make sure that they do a good job of, of always incorporating more into that family, um, and, and sometimes we don't do a great job of that. But I also know that there's a responsibility for other that if, that if, if church is just a time I attend, is just a religious service I attend, that's not how God designed it. He said, I, I thank you for your love for all the saints. One of the biggest impediments, and I know, oh my goodness, I, uh, I know I'm going to step on some toes. Tom's notwithstanding. Um, one of the challenges we have in, in experiencing true biblical love for our brothers and sisters in Christ is our love for our own families. Now, hear me. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your families. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't love your mother and your father and your wife and your children and your parents and your cousins and your second cousins and your great aunt and your granddaddy. I'm not saying that. But sometimes, all of our love, all of our commitment is is poured into our biological families 
and nothing to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's not how He designed it. I mean, if you look at what Jesus said, what does He say? Unless you hate your father and mother and brother and sister, you can't be my disciple. What does He say? He says that we have to be careful that our biological relationships and, and the love that we have for our families don't become obstacles for our love for Him and in Colossians, certainly an obstacle for our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm telling you, when we started this church, that was one of our biggest goals, that we would truly experience what it means to be in biblical community that really cares about each other, that really loves each other. And he says to the Colossians, I see that in you. I see that in you. Your love for all the saints. And, and for those of us at home group, John's going, to make, John's going to even get tougher on us. John's going to say this. Let me give you a... Okay, I'm Danny and... And, and Tom, I'm sorry for letting the cat out of the bag. John's going to say, if you don't love the saints, you don't, don't, don't say you love the Father. You're a liar. We'll wrestle with that. <laughs> John's... Any, any black and white thinkers in here? I, I see that hand. Um, you're going to love John. John is black and white, man. But, but no, he, he's emphasizing. I think John is just simply drawing a point that that these two things are, are, in fact, he says in Colossians, I thank you for your faith in Christ, your love for your brothers, sisters in Christ. And I, and I say simply, how can we say we love the Father when we don't love his children? Well, what if someone did that? What if someone came to you, um, Karen, I love you, but I can't stand your kids. <laughs> doesn't feel good though <laughs> no. oh, I didn't mean I'm sorry I didn't think I didn't. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed right now if you saw my face it'd be red right now I'm sorry Karen so um, in other words John is saying they're, they're separate to be sure faith in Christ your love for the Father, your love for you, those two are separate, but they're not separated. He glues them together. Okay? Anyway, we'll get to that in First John. So, these are the results. Faith in Jesus Christ and the love they have for all the saints. And then verse 5 says, because... So, these two results are, are a result of what? Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. So, because their hope because of their hope reserved for them in heaven, it produced faith in Christ and love for all the saints. So let, let's just be mathematicians for a minute. If there, is no, if there is no love for the saints and there is no faith in Christ, what might be the reason? No hope. Because he says the, the source or the reason for faith in Christ and love for all the saints is the hope. And, and notice he says, the hope, where is it? Reserved for you in heaven. Or, or laid up for you in heaven. In other words, hope is the content. Not, in other words, it's not, it's not a subjective sentiment of optimism. It's not the act of hoping. It is the content. Hope is the content. So what is the nature of the hope that is reserved, stored up for in heaven. Let me give you one possible example. Turn over to 2 Timothy. Do you see what I mean when I say, he's saying, you're, you're not hoping for heaven, but it's, it's what is laid up for them? Hope. So hope is the content, 
and the object, and I think, uh, same author, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. This, there may be many nuances to this hope, um, but this is one, certainly. 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. He's talking. He's, he's writing to. He's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, "I, I don't have much time left." Um, and he says in verse eight, "There is reserved for me, in the future, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give me on that day." And what do some of your other translations say in verse eight? The first part, Tom. What does New American Standard say? Verse eight. Uh, no, just the first part of eight. There is laid up for me. A crown of righteousness. Now, real quickly, this is a side. When, when our translations say crown, you know what you automatically think of? You think of, you know, like Tudor England and, mm, the, the, you know, the big crown thing. That's not what this is. This is Stephanus. This would have been a wreath. This would have been a, a wreath of plants and flowers, not a crown. So, Get out of your head that when we get to heaven, we're going to take off all these hard crowns and lay them at Jesus' feet. Okay? Because these are wreaths. And when it says a crown of righteousness, what do we call that? X of Y. That's a genitive. What does it mean, crown of righteousness? It's probably a crown which is righteousness. Our reward is absolute pure righteousness. The hope, one of the hope laid up for in heaven is to, is to be free... From all of this, in other words, all that God has promised us is stored up for us in heaven. And that's our hope. It's not a, it's not a sentimental uh, optimism. It, it, in fact, the author of Hebrews says, this is the, the substance of things hoped for. It is that... Great hope, that hope of righteousness, that hope of being in God's presence, um, that hope of being no more tears, no more crying, no more physical maladies. All of it, and, and, and we sang about it, to see Jesus face to face. These are the things that produce, Paul says, faith and love. But he goes even further. Go back to Colossians. So, we have faith and love, which come from hope. Which, which come from hope. But where did where did they get this hope? Look at the part, last part of verse five. We'll read it because of the hope reserved for you, and you have already heard about this hope. Where the message, the word of truth, the gospel. So you see how he's worked. He's gone from the results, which is faith and love to the reason for that hope and that, that faith and love, which is hope. And then the source of the hope is, in fact, and this is the most important part of this, of this section that Paul wants us to get, and that is the word of truth, the gospel. Hope comes from the gospel, the word of truth, the word that is truth, or the truthful word. The... the the word that teaches truth, that, that, that is truth, that is truthful. All these different aspects. And he says that it, you've, you've got this hope from this gospel. And then he describes the gospel. And by the way, what is the gospel? 
You can, you can say it in here. No one's going to throw you in jail. Uh, no one's going to tell you to be quiet. What is the Gospel? Jesus Christ came, died, was buried, rose again. That's the Gospel. How do we respond to the Gospel? By faith alone. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is not the Gospel. It's our response to the Gospel. The Gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus Christ came, He died, He was buried, and He rose again. And that simple faith and trust in Him, you receive eternal life. And that's, that's so simple. And yet, Paul says that is so profoundly powerful. He said it's so powerful. Listen to what he says. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world. You say, come on, Paul. All over the world? This, this word here means inhabited earth. He's not suggesting that the gospel made it to South America. They didn't even know South America existed. But, but so what I did is I went through the book of Acts, and I just kind of said, how far at this time had the gospel probably grown? Or in a short period of time would have grown? It obviously started in Jerusalem, then Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Italy, likely into Egypt. We have the Ethiopian eunuch, certainly. We know many of the early missionaries. Even, even if you remember the book of Acts, there were missionaries from, uh, from Egypt that were in uh, Antioch. So we have Greece, Italy, Egypt, North Africa, and Persia. The whole world. So, so, in the end of Romans, chapter 26, he can say the gospel has been preached to all nations. That's why he can say that. Because it had. It's already been preached to all nations. And he said, it is bearing fruit and growing. And here's what I think probably is going on here. Um, by the way, he says, it's bearing fruit and growing among you. And then he adds, the whole world. I think the bearing fruit, probably the emphasis is on depth. Or quality. It, it's continually bearing fruit. It's kind of like Tom and Carol's apple and pear tree. It's, it's, continually, it's continually bearing fruit. And we've all, or most of us, have been the recipients of that fruit. It is, it is depth. It's quality. And then the growing is quantity. It's, it's the breadth. So he's saying, even at this stage in the church, the, this, this gospel was bearing fruit. It was changing lives. It was transforming lives. And it was growing. In fact, the church of Colossae was a perfect example. Paul didn't plant there. Probably had never been there. Certainly never met them. But what happened? Was Epaphras obviously came to know Christ through Paul's preaching somewhere, somehow, and he goes back to his hometown, which is Colossae, and he starts sharing the gospel and people's lives are transformed. They have faith in Christ and love for all the saints. And it grows. And then those people go somewhere. And he said it's just going all over the world. Um, how many of you... Uh, don't raise your hand because I don't... Yeah. How many of you read that email I sent out about Iran? Uh, Vicky and I watched some of that. Did you get a chance to watch that video? It's two hours long. We got into it. We said, we've got to do something with this for our church. Guys, uh, something's going on in Iran. And, and we're... we're my wife and I are thinking about, uh, of course, with my wife involved, there's food is involved. She's already planning on how to do the food. 
We, we want to plan some kind of special church thing uh, around this whole issue. But, but I've read this book called A Wind in the House of Islam. Let me just give you an example of, of the powerful gospel growing throughout the whole world. And, and um, he, what, he, what this author does is he, he, he takes the, the House of Islam all of the, all of, around the world as the House of Islam, and then he, he talks about different rooms, which would be different regions. So you have like the, the East African room, the North African room, and, and this is called the Persian room, which is basically Iran and Iraq. Um, let me just, I, I know someone else reading the book to you is terribly boring, but, but just bear with me and stay, try to stay with me. On the eve of the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Iran, there were likely no more than 500 Muslim background followers. We, well, he, he distinguishes Muslim background followers as those who were formerly Muslim, Iranian Muslims. Okay? In a nation of 40 million mostly Shiite Muslims, three decades later, hundreds of thousands of Iranian Muslims have given their lives to Jesus Christ. What happened? How is God at work in this, in, in this Islamic nation? To answer these questions, we must enter the Persian room and listen to its Muslim background followers. And so he gives this, this story of Nadia, this woman named Nadia, um, and, and how Christ revealed himself to her and how she came to know Christ. And he says at the end, he says, Nadia's testimony of one of thousands that are bubbling up in contemporary Iran in what is certainly the greatest turning of Muslims to Christ in Iran's history. And quite possibly the largest turning of Muslims to Christ in the world today. And he talks about these common elements of how God is, is, is bringing them to them. And they all are about the gospel. Um, uh, let me read this uh, part. Despite government back... Uh, oh, no. Of Iran's population today, 64% were born after the 1979 Islamic Revolution and have little affection for it. While Christianity is growing rapidly in the country, so too are many other worldviews as Muslim Iranians seek a respite from state religion. It is common to find Iranian young adults walking away from Islam and turning to other... He talks about drugs is a big problem in Iran apparently right now. Um, and that was Nadia's uh, testimony. She was in narcotic, kind of a narcotics anonymous. And, and part of the program had Jesus in it. Not a higher being, but Jesus. Despite government-backed denunciations of America as the great Satan, for many Iranians, America represents the very freedom for which they yearn. American journalist Scott Peterson observed hidden behind the mullah's mask is the most unashamedly pro-American population in the Middle East. The sentiment was expressed spontaneously after 9-11, blah, blah. He says, the paradox of Iran is that it just might be the most pro-American or at least, at least anti-American populace in the Muslim world. And he goes on to say, Iran's young population is hungry for freedom. And, and a growing number of them are finding that freedom not in America or in domestic political reform, but in the purpose of Jesus Christ. And that video is so, so powerfully, they have actual testimonies. How do you explain that? There are no American missionaries in Iran. How do you explain that? The gospel in, in, inherent in the very gospel itself is the power of God. This is why Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation unto all who believe, for the Jew first, even for the Gentile, and especially for Muslims. He said, 
In fact, that is happening. It was happening to them. Just as it has among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in the truth. What's the gospel about? Grace. What makes the what's one of the reasons that makes the gospel so powerful? Grace. And he said, when you heard it and you were understanding the nature of it, which is grace. Now, he has this phrase, in truth. Now, the question is, what does that modify? Does that modify their understanding? So, was it, is it more of a tributive that until you truly understood? Or is it saying something about grace? It could modify either one. It could modify their understanding. It could be saying something about the nature of their understanding of it. Or it could, be under, it could be explaining something about the grace itself. And our translations reflect these two different options. The NIV says, when you truly understood grace. Others say, when you understood grace in all its truth, in all its aspects. When they started grasping the gospel and the implications of the gospel, and as their lives were transformed by it, it grew, and not only in terms of bearing fruit, but grew in terms of breath. And even to this day, we see the gospel. You know what? All we focus is on in America is all of our problems. And, and, and I understand that, because it didn't used to be that way. But you can't, can you not tell me that the gospel has not grown since the Reformation? My goodness. We, we taught, we, we're, we're gloom and doomers. We're gloom and doomers. You know? Yeah, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. I'm sorry, any kids here? Heck in a handbasket. Sorry, Megan. Heck in a handbasket. And yet we, for, we, we, we don't know and we don't see what the, the power of the gospel and what God's doing around the world in Iran. Of all places. This is not a time for gloom and doom. And I fall into it all the time. I get so discouraged with our country and our culture and all that's going on. And it sure does seem like it's going to Gehenna in a, in a handbasket. But we've lost sight of the power of the gospel. And I had, to, I had to confess, I really don't, sometimes I really don't believe it. I really don't believe the gospel is powerful enough to change people's lives and to change a country's life and a culture's, to change a culture. It is a powerful, dynamic gospel on an individual level, but on a global level. Hebrews 4.12. What is Hebrews? The word is what? A double-edged sword. Finally, he says about this powerful gospel, there was a faithful minister. Look at verse 7. You learned it from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow slave. He is the faithful servant of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. Now, absent experiences like Iran, which God is using, almost universally using dreams and visions, not to save them, but to lead them to Christ, that they hear the gospel. Nadia's case, she, heard, she, she had dreams and visions of Jesus. And she went to this meeting and they talked about Jesus and about faith in Christ and she gave her life to Christ. So these dreams and visions are, are, are what's the word, uh, preemptory. What, what am I trying to say? 
preemptory. Help me out, Joanna, here. They, they prepare them. They're preparatory. That's the word I was thinking of. They're preparatory. Uh, but by and large, how does God spread the gospel? Through faithful ministers, like Epaphras. How did the church of Colossae get founded? Epaphras. Epaphras was preaching and sharing the gospel. By and large, with the exception of countries like Iran, God's gospel, His plan, is not through angels, and ultimately not through visions and dreams. Those are just preparatory. But He does it through faithful ministers who preach the gospel to the unsaved. The other night in our Wednesday night Bible study, we, we, we were going through Second Kings, and, and there we, in fact, I brought up this whole issue of um, uh, the, 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 I'd heard a definition of evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. After I finished Colossians, I think that's not quite accurate. I think it would, I think what it is is one hungry beggar eagerly eating the bread and being changed by it, and then urging other poor beggars to eat of that same bread. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, one of the integral parts of the, the, the spread of the gospel was a transformation of their lives. Do my neighbors see me any different than they? Is, is, is my life so transformed by the gospel that people want to eat the bread that I've eaten. It it tells me, guys, the importance of continuing to grow in our understanding and our appreciation for the gospel. The gospel just doesn't get us into the kingdom. And then we move on to, uh, uh, you know, to other things like marriage and parenting and, um, you know, how how to to invest. Um, Now, all those things are important. All those things the Bible speaks to. I'm not, I'm not belittling those things. But when we, when we stop growing in our understanding and appreciation for the gospel, I think then and only then we become malnourished. And our souls begin to starve. And that's when we start seeking experiences. And that's when we start speaking new, seeking new, new creative contemporary teaching. And I think that as we drift away from an ongoing, growing understanding of the gospel, we, we, we lose our sense of focus and emphasis of the Bible. And this, I think, this abandonment, in, in many cases, it, it got me in the front door and I forget about it. This abandonment of this gospel is why so many of us are malnourished and our lives, our Christian lives, our Christian experiences become stale. Have we been transformed by the power of the gospel like the church in Colossae? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the transformation in our lives. Father, those uh, among us who were saved as adults probably appreciate it more than those of us who did it as children. But Father, in any event, we thank You for a powerful Gospel. What a difference the Gospel makes. What a difference the Gospel is making in in a country like Iran. And Father, we pray for our land. That as we vote, and as we stand for truth, and all the things that we can and should be doing, Father, may we never forget 
that what's really going to transform this world and what is transformed, that is, that is bearing fruit and growing even to this day, is the gospel. May we never forget it. May, may this church always be focused on the gospel and in all its, all its implications, all its ramifications. And Lord, may we too experience fruit and growth because of the gospel. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?